Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have Michael Preciado with me. He is um, uh, a super cool guy. I just recently, uh, well, I guess, I don't remember the first time I reached out to him, but uh, we kind of been uh, Facebook messenger friends. <laughs> you know, um, I invited uh, Michael on a while back to, uh, to talk a little bit about his book um, on free will. Uh, but he was a little busy and we were able to reschedule and now he's he's here today. So what I want to do is I just want to jump right into uh, introductory material on Michael. And uh, actually, let me let me rewind. Um, I want to let people know that there are going to be some upcoming episodes that I think folks are going to find really interesting. I'm going to have Michael Icona on on May 3rd to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Um, and again, if you are one of my followers who is a die in the wool presuppositionalist, you know, in your apologetic methodology, don't private message me and tell me Michael Icona is an evidentialist, you know? Yes, I know. Okay. I know. And no, I'm not going to debate him on apologetic methodology. I'm having him on to talk about evidence for the resurrection. Okay. As you guys have heard me say in the past, uh, just because, um, you know, we might agree, disagree on, um, methodological issues does not mean that we cannot learn from those from those different um, apologetic perspectives, and so um, what I encourage folks when when we do have um, Dr. Lycona on, um, take what he what he has to say, and contextualize it. Right? If you're a diehard presuppositional presuppositionalist, presuppositionalize the evidence he gives. Okay, but there's still a helpful uh, conversation uh, to be had there. Okay, I also am going to have um, Scarlett Clay, um, who is. Um, Unknown. She's actually a friend on Facebook, and she posted a very interesting article that I found very interesting. Um, it was um, an account of her experience at Biola University um, and how learning apologetics at Biola University actually led her to presuppositional apologetics. How about that? Uh, Biola University is definitely uh, not the center of presuppositional apologetic methodology, uh, but her story was really interesting. I'm going to have her on to talk a little bit about the article that she that she shared. Um, and I think it's actually going to be super interesting because um, it really allows us to highlight the importance of putting God first in our apologetics. And of course, that's true with respect to everything else in the Christian life, right? Our relationship with God, our desire to display the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the goodness and greatness of God should be the center of gravity uh, in our lives, in our apologetic and in everything that we do. So that's super, super important. All right. Well, all that out of the way, I think I'm also going to be uh, moderating a discussion between Joshua Pillows and I'm not going to pronounce the other gentleman's name. He's super nice and I don't have time to look up his name, but it's a, a very hard to pronounce name. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Stroudian objection to the transcendental argument. Um, so we're going to get into some details that we have a moderated discussion. I'll let you guys know the date on that in a future episode. That's going to be super interesting. So um, if you guys want some background on what the Stroudian objection to the transcendental argument is, I would highly, highly recommend you listen to a, a few episodes back where I had Joshua Pillows on talking about the Stroudian objection. Now that might sound very abstract and completely um, impractical, but actually we talk about a whole host of things related to presuppositionalism um, and, and kind of details that I think would be helpful for anyone, even a beginner, uh, to, to, to take some time and listen to. So definitely want to check that out. All right. Well, without further ado, let me introduce uh, Michael Preciado. 
And apparently, I am the first person to properly pronounce his name. So, huh, okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, before I, I put him on the screen here, uh, he was recommended by uh, Guillaume Bignon, okay, who I always introduce as the French Calvinist philosopher. You have to mention he's French because when you think of Calvinism, John Calvin was a, a you know, he was a Frenchman. So it just makes his Calvinism more authentic. But today we're, we're going international here, right? We, we have the French Calvinist philosopher today or tonight, rather, I have the Mexican Calvinist philosopher. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let me, let me invite uh, Michael Preciado on. How are you doing, Michael? I'm great. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, how do you like that introduction? The Mexican Calvinist wonderful. philosopher. Okay. And, and, my, and the interesting thing is, it, it, that's awesome. And the interesting thing, thing is Michael and I have something in common. I think we do. He can correct me, but, um, while I'm not a philosopher in, in that respect, I have, I've, I've never had um, formal training in philosophy. I am Puerto Rican, but I don't speak Spanish. And right. to my knowledge, Michael Preciado is Mexican, but he doesn't speak Spanish. So there you go. That is true. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Now that we have shamed our or places of origin, <laughs> let me give folks a little bit of background uh, on Michael. Michael uh, Preciado is a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He is happily married and the father of two wonderful children. He holds a BA and an MA in philosophy, an MDiv from Westminster Seminary CA, and a PhD in philosophical theology from the University of Aberdeen. His interests are in the areas of apologetics, philosophy, theology, and preaching. He is a Reformed Christian and approaches all these areas from a confessionally Reformed perspective. Maybe we'll ask him a little bit about that. Uh, his first book, A Reformed View of Freedom, The Compatibility of Guidance, Control, and Reformed Theology is due to be released. And that is false because it's already released and has been released, but I'm reading from, uh, from his blog here. Um, so, um, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you. Would you like to add a little bit to, uh, that basic introduction? Yeah. Well, uh, thanks first of all, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've, uh, able to watch a few episodes of, of your show and I think you do a great job and I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, couple things, uh, I, I recently came into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church so I'm no longer part of the PCA um, and yes as as you noticed it said in, in that blog uh, that the book is due to come out so that was obviously written a long time ago and if you go to my website you'll notice that I've done absolutely nothing with my website. I've had it for a number of years now, and I just haven't had the time to do what I wanted to do. So that's why, you know, it said that the book was coming out soon when it in fact has been out for, oh goodness, maybe a year now, I think. Yeah, it has been, it has been, I remember purchasing it a while back. Mm. Um, let me get, let me get folks the title of that a book again, just in case they're interested. The book is called a reformed view of freedom, the compatibility of guidance, control and reformed theology. Um, to my knowledge, Michael comes from a more, uh, analytic philosophical tradition in his philosophy. And so the book does come, if you can correct me, it comes from that perspective in addressing that yeah. specific issue. Yes, okay. that's true. All right. Yes. All right. All right. Very good. So, so if, if someone was in a bookstore and they found your book and they said, I like free will stuff and I like reformed theology and you know, you happen to be there at, at, uh, at Barnes and Noble, said, actually, that's my book. I, I wrote it. And they're like, Oh, great. What is it about? How would you kind of summarize what your book is about for someone who's never heard of you or maybe they have a passing interest in the topic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there are a number of things that I'm trying to accomplish in the book. 
uh, one of them is to establish that um, there is compatibility between uh, traditional reform theology and a lot of the work, contemporary work over the past 60 years in analytic philosophy that has been done um, on the free will and moral responsibility question, particularly with regards to the compatibilist or the semi-compatibilist views. So the idea is to alert reform theologians that there's nothing bad about this, that it's something that actually will be very helpful for them to use these resources and to mine them in order to start addressing issues that you know come up with the whole free will question. Uh, mm. Another purpose is that uh, of late, maybe the past 10 years, there have been certain debates going on within reform theology as to what reform theology is with regards to free will. Is it theological determinism? Is it compatibilism? Did Jonathan Edwards depart from the Reformed tradition? So I address those questions as well. And then mm. thirdly, uh, this is, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Nope, go for it. You finish your thought there. I was just going to say that this is uh, kind of like the first step in a larger project. Um, the next book, Lord willing, is going to be coming up with a model of reformed, mm. uh, of a reformed view of freedom um, so that I can then apply that eventually to a third volume, Lord willing, that would be addressing things like the problem of evil, um, is God the author of sin? So sure. this is very much a foundational level book that is going to be, Lord willing, built upon. Yeah. Well, what I appreciate about um, what you just mentioned there, you, you spoke about a free will, you spoke about Jonathan Edwards. Uh, these discussions um, on free will have such a broader context, right? You have philosophy in there. You have uh, theology in there. You have church history, right? Surveying what people yeah. have said. Um, why is it important to know the background music of the debates on free will? Yeah, I, there's a number of ways to approach that. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're in the Reformed tradition, um, you, you'll want to know what your forefathers taught and okay. what that looks like in terms of what is going on in the contemporary scene. But also it's important to recognize just that our views today didn't just pop up today. Right. They have a history and there are, are lots of many, many theologians uh, in the past that have parsed out these issues that are also great resources for a Calvinist or a reformed theologian or reformed philosopher. And another aspect of my book is I'm trying to to turn people back to that and say, look, these are things that we could use to mine from this and mine from modern day uh, analytic philosophy and kind of bring these things together and hopefully come up with a very powerful uh, defense of a reformed view of freedom. So those would be a couple of reasons why I think that's important. Now, the issue of free will always comes up um, in discussions on Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism, and all the isms that are associated with this topic. Um, I think one common misconception um, from a lot of people, there are a lot of misconceptions about what Calvinism is, but one main uh, misconception that I see is that Calvinists don't believe in free will. We typically are described as those guys who, oh yeah, they, those guys over there don't believe in free will. Um, what would you say to someone who says, you're a Calvinist, so, so you're, you don't believe in free will. How would you address that issue from, from your Reformed perspective? So if it was an Arminian that was asking me that, I would just do the same trick. I would say, you're an Arminian. You don't believe in free will, right? Because <laughs> I mean, basically the whole, the whole point is 
you're defining free will differently. And okay. there's no reason to, to prefer one definition over another just from the get-go, right? And that's what mm. typically Arminians do in my experience is, is they are assuming a libertarian view of freedom and then saying, you Calvinist, you don't believe in free will. Well, why can't we do the same? Why can't we assume a compatibilist view of freedom and say, you Arminian, you don't believe in free will, right? Those kinds of things aren't productive. Um, sure. So well, well, I, Michael, I would say, yeah. Uh, well, 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 Michael, when I believe in free will from my Arminian perspective, it seems to be the face. It's what everyone assumes when you think of free will, right? You know, you're the one yeah. that has the idiosyncratic understanding of free will. It's not really free. What the average person thinks of as free will, that's what we mean, right? The average person is on our side, right? Uh, how would you address, I mean, we hear these things all the yeah. time. How would you address uh, someone who's coming from that perspective? Two, two ways. First, I would ask, well, how do you know that the average person believes that? I mean, have you surveyed every single average person in the world and come to this conclusion? And the mm -hmm. typical answer is going to be no, they, have, they haven't. Uh, second, sure. there, there is this whole field, and I'm going off the top of my head here, so I might not get all the okay. details right. There's this That's whole okay. field called uh, experimental philosophy. These are, okay. these are guys that go out into the world and, and do like surveys and empirical studies and stuff on what people believe, what are, are people's intuitions. And one of the things that they found was um, that when you ask certain questions in a certain way, people's intuitions are predominantly compatibilist, not libertarian. And here's an example okay. of that. If you make it very concrete, like so if you if you make it abstract and you say, okay, you live in a determined universe and Joe Schmo does X, is that guy responsible? You're going to typically get more of a libertarian uh, intuition. Sure. But if you say, look, you live in a determined universe and some guy, Joe Schmo, came and murdered your kids, is that guy responsible? And the typical response is yes. He is responsible. So those are compatibilist intuitions. Now, mm. I would have to cite the studies and all that, uh, of course, to, to justify all that. But that's basically what they found. And sure. so that challenges just this whole idea that this is that libertarian view of freedom is the common sense view. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, OK, so so this is primarily an apologetics uh, channel, um, but we're talking about a theological and philosophical topic, which I think has apologetic import. And if you're reformed yeah. and you're defending reformed theology, that's in a sense apologetics. You don't always do apologetics to unbelievers. Sometimes you could do apologetics to other believers, kind of those in-house uh, discussions. Um, right. That being said, an important aspect of doing apologetics is defining our terms, right? Um, yeah. If anyone is familiar with Walter Martin's uh, Kingdom of the Cults, uh, one of the first chapters in that book um, deals with scaling the language barrier. So, for example, when we speak with the Mormon, we might utilize or they might utilize the language of Trinity. And we use the language of tr Trinity or salvation, but we don't mean the same things by them. So defining terms is vitally important. And that's no different when we're speaking theology, philosophy. So with that said, how would you define, I mean, you, you threw some terms around here, libertarian free will, compatibilist free will. What is free will? What is libertarian free will? And what is compatibilism? So that it can provide kind of an intellectual context for people who are, who are listening. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so one of the things you want to do when, when you engage in these debates is you don't want to beg the question from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't start off by 
defining liberty, uh, defining free will in a, in a compatibilistly loaded manner. I would basically just say, look, free will is the control condition of moral responsibility. Uh, pretty much everybody would agree that control is vital to being morally responsible and control is vital to free will. So I would start there so that we have a point of entry so as not to beg the question from the beginning. Now, now that said, given the taxonomy of the different views out there with regards to free will, a compatibilist is just saying that determinism defined as conditional or hypothetical necessity is compatible with free will and moral responsibility. A libertarian okay. is a species of incompatibilist. So an incompatibilist says determinism is not compatible with free will and moral responsibility. Now, in the in, in the category of, of, of uh, incompatibilism, you have libertarians and you have hard determinists. A libertarian okay. says free will and, uh, I'm sorry, determinism and moral responsibility are not compatible. Free will is true, therefore determinism is false. A hard, a hard incompatibilist or a hard determinist is going to say um, free will and moral responsibility are incompatible with determinism. Determinism is true, therefore we are not, we don't have free will and moral responsibility. Uh, and, and typically what they mean by moral responsibility is moral responsibility in the basic dessert way. Um, okay. What, what does that I mean? So, so there are different ways of holding people responsible, right? One is called a consequentialist way, which is you try to deter behavior. So I would put someone in prison or a state would put someone in prison for the purpose of deterring future behavior. Right. So that's a, a more consequentialist view of moral responsibility. And, and a hard determinist would basically hold that view. Um, a basic dessert view is saying you put someone in prison just because they deserve to be in prison for what they did. Right. Okay. So a, a hard determinist is going to not affirm a basic dessert sense of moral responsibility. OK. Does that make any so sense? When you say Yes. When you say compatible, so so what view would you would you say you hold, or what is the standard reform perspective on that out of that spectrum right. that you just provided for us? So in my book, I make the argument that um, basically the standard reform view is a, a compatibilist view, and, and I even make it a little bit more specific. Uh, and this might be a little bit more controversial, but I mean we can discuss this. But I, I would sure. argue that it's even a semi-compatibilist view now. Semi-compatibilism, if you want me to kind of discuss yeah, that a go little for bit. It. Okay, Please so semi-compatibilism yeah. is the view um, that if you define free will as a libertarian, then that is incompatible with determinism. And so a semi-compatibilist is going to say, okay, fine, just take that. You can have the term, go ahead, run with it. But determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. Because oh, okay, that, okay, that, I'm gonna stop right there. Okay, so that's a yeah. subtle, that's a very subtle yes. understanding. Of that. Can you say that one more time? So, so sure. you said, sure. so you said that the semi, uh, the semi compatibilist will say, "Fine, Mister Libertarian, you know, free will is." Um, would you say? Can you just repeat what you said before? Yeah, when yeah. You made the distinction so, there. In order to kind of get to the heart of what really matters, because what really matters here is, is moral responsibility. 
Correct. And not that free will is not matter, but I mean, one of the reasons why people say you must have free will is so that you can be held morally responsible, right? right. So a semi-compatibilist oftentimes will just say, look, I don't want to get distracted with these kinds of things. Go ahead. If you want to define free will as a libertarian, fine. You can take that term. And I will say, I agree with you. Libertarian free will is not compatible with determinism. But the real issue is, is determinism compatible with moral responsibility? And a semi-compatibilist then is going to say, okay, take the free will, but determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. Now, when you say take the free will, you're just granting them. That's okay. That's okay. But you're granting them the definition, not the hypothetical truth. Like, fine, even if that's true, this is true over here. Which one are you doing? Are you just giving them the definition? Okay, fine. I understand what you're saying. Are you granting that even if that's true, it doesn't touch this other important area? Yeah. So I'm saying basically, if you're going to insist that free will must be defined in a libertarian way, I agree with you. You know, libertarianism is not compatible with determinism. Okay. And I could I could give the compatibilist definition of freedom, which I believe in. I mean, I think there is a compatibilist definition of freedom. But instead of arguing over the definition, you know, let's just get to the heart of the matter. Um, let's talk about moral responsibility. Determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. So let's just cut to the chase and do that. Mm, okay, that's very helpful. Um, because <laughs> yes, that's very helpful. And and again, that highlights the importance of defining our terms, right? Because right. especially when we're when we're defending the reform position, sometimes um, our into interlocutors use terminology in a very sloppy way. And if we don't allow, if we don't ask them to define their terms, we can kind of accept or reject something that we don't necessarily have to accept or reject. So I think that's a very right. important uh, distinction you made there. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit about uh, compatibilism. So I'm I'm not a strong determinist. I'm not a, a hard determinist, right? Um, and, and okay, so, and determinism would be a, a form of, well, it's determinism. Compatibilism would say that determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. Is that what you said? Um, I, I couldn't catch what you said. Can you repeat that? So you said compatibilism is the idea that free will is compatible with moral responsibility. Yeah, it, well, compatibilism is the idea that free will is compatible. I'm sorry. Compatibilism is the idea that determinism is compatible with free will and with moral responsibility. Okay. All right. And so, okay. So, so when you speak to the, the, the Arminian or some flavor of libertarian uh, free will, you know, one who's familiar with compatibilism. Yeah, I know that's what you believe, Michael. But when I ask you, how, how do you explain that compatibility? You guys always punt to mystery, right? It's always a great mystery. And what will they do? They'll go straight to chosen by God and quote RC Sproul saying, I don't know how it works together. Right (laughs) there. It's like two tracks, right? That, that meet in the horizon or these pillars that somehow they look separate here, but in heaven they'll make, you know, you know, they look like the cop. And I'm not saying that it's not mysterious. I mean, we are, I mean, Sure. The Arminian who disagrees or the Molinist or the, what, the Libertarian who disagrees with the Calvinist position, go a little easy on us. Not that we don't have answers to these questions and explanations, but you are touching on a topic that is profoundly complicated as to how yeah. the transcendent God 
interacts with creation as it relates to his decree, our choices and his plan. It's not, a, it's, it's a difficult topic. Okay. But in their defense, I do think that sometimes we can be too quick to punt to mystery. And I'm not saying there isn't a mystery there. Um, but how would you make sense when someone says, okay, fine. You think that determinism and, uh, moral responsive freedom and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. Explain that to me because it's it's a mess in my head. I can't possibly see how these things are compatible. Yeah, I, I, it's great that you brought up the whole issue of mystery because when if I have an opportunity in talking to somebody to do this in a in a systematic way where I start mm -hmm. here and I end here, I always begin with mystery okay. because the truth of the matter is God is infinite and we are finite. So every single thing that we know from Revelation in Scripture is ultimately shrouded in mystery. God reveals, I mean, to put it sloppily, God reveals certain propositions that have a systematic coherence, but we don't know everything else, right? So we must begin with mystery. I always would like to begin with mystery because I sometimes think these debates end up sounding a little bit too rationalistic as though we're saying we have everything figured out when, when in fact we don't, we, there's no way God being infinite means that there's so much more, an infinite amount of knowledge more that we don't know that stands behind what he reveals. And can you always I cut have it? to keep it. Yeah. Go ahead. Can I, can I cut in? Is that sort of like, the the Bible reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the God man. He is truly God, truly man. There are biblical propositions that we can use to make this fit together. But ultimately, ultimately, yeah. I cannot explain to you specifically how that ontologically works out. How is it yes. that there is this one person, Jesus Christ, and who who housed in his person are these two distinct natures? So, so we can know what those doctrines are give biblical support, show that it's not logically contradictory, but we can't actually tell you the ends. And is that what you're saying? That there's a revelation That's there, a that there's a mystery behind it in, in a sense. Yes. Yes. Essentially what I'm saying is God, um, to, to use John Calvin's language, God is speaking baby talk to us in mm. scripture in the sense. Okay. So it's kind of like if, if I, I have a three-year-old daughter, for instance, right? Um, if I were to sit here and try to describe to her what guidance control is or, or <laughs> you know, what is super lapsarianism, she's just going to kind of be, well, I don't even get what you're talking about, right? Sure. So you necessarily have to, I don't want to say dumb down, but accommodate your language to your child. Right. And, and, and the distance between me and my daughter is far closer than the distance between me and God. There's mm -hmm. an infinite distance between me and God. So God accommodates. He speaks in baby talk to us so that we can know what his will is and what he has revealed. But there's far more mystery beyond that. OK, so in other words, I mean, I lost track of your original question, but I just wanted to make, well, well, to make the well, point that I always start with mystery. Right. And I think that's and, an important. And let me just let me just say this really quickly too. Sure. So does the Arminian, so does everybody else. Nobody believes that they completely comprehend God. Right. right. So there's going to be appeals to mystery in every theological tradition. The question is, where precisely do you locate the mystery? Where does the mm -hmm. Bible locate the mystery? 
Yes. And there's the disagreement and hence the different right. positions. So all, exactly. all, we all hold to some aspects of mystery. We disagree as to where that mystery is, is placed. Now, now my original question was when you, when you postulate compatibilism, free will is compatible with determinism or free will right. and moral responsibility is compatible, compatible with determinism. The question was how I see, I know that's what you believe, Michael, how do you make sense out of? Because in my mind, it sounds like a contradiction. How would you unpack, begin to unpack that for someone the best that you can? So you do basically by starting with defining terms. Okay. Um, when when you say free will, what do you mean? Uh, if mm. you mean libertarian free will, and, and by libertarian free will, like a rough definition would would basically be, <clears throat> excuse me, it would basically be um, that you are able to do. A or B, given whatever, how can I put this? So you can do, you can have alternative possibilities regardless of what your internal state is and the whole facts of the world are, right? Mm. So in other words, let's put it this way. There's a really good, interesting way of illustrating this. Peter Van Inwagen, it's called the, the rollback argument. And so okay. basically okay. The, the idea is this. Um, Eli's eating French fries at T1, right? So T1 just means time slice one, right? It's just mm -hmm. trying to identify a moment in time. So Eli is doing that. Now, imagine if God were to roll back the entire history of the universe and then let it go again back to T1. What would Eli do? And you do that over and over and over again like a thousand times. A libertarian is basically going to say that there's going to be a percentage of times when Eli doesn't eat French fries. There's going to be a percentage of time when Eli does eat French fries, right? So there's nothing about Eli's state that determines for him that he will eat French fries, right? And that's why when you roll things back, you get different results. Is that the so, is that the is would that be related to the categorical and conditional distinctions of ability? So that if if one or the libertarian, for example, will hold with respect to um, the ability, um, they would hold to a categorical ability. So that all things being equal, they can do a different thing than they actually, in fact, do. Whereas the conditional exactly ability right. to do otherwise would say that if the conditions were different, had he wanted to to eat French fries or not to eat French fries than he could have, but reality, he didn't want to. So he didn't, is that, is that yes. literally, is that kind of what you're, you're touching on that in part? Yes. I mean the, the, so the categorical ability is an ability that the libertarian affirms. The okay. question is, does the compatibilist affirm a conditional ability? And some do, some don't. Um, I, I think there are other ways of articulating what it means to have an ability than the conditional analysis of ability. Mm. Okay, so, so, okay, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, but, but substantially I, I agree that there is an ability to do otherwise. The question is, how do we best analyze that? Mm. And the okay. conditional analysis is one way of doing that. Okay, uh, now real quick, I just wanna tell people in the comments, if you have any questions that you'd like Michael to address, um, leave them in the comments. And as we usually do at the back end of the episode, um, we'll go through the questions. Um, and if they look hard and, and Michael signals, I don't wanna answer that one, we'll just skip over that one. <laughs> just go like, 
He's like, no, no, I don't do that one. That's a, that's too hard. Um, okay. So, okay. So, so let's get back to the original, original question then. So, so sure. when I say explain to me how uh, free will, moral responsibility is compatible with determinism, you, you, you made the point, well, what do we mean by free will? And so you would make a distinction there, you know, well, are you talking about libertarian freedom? Are you talking about compatibilistic uh, freedom? Uh, you know, so the person defines their terms. And if they're not defining free will adequately, then you need to kind of rest the conversation on getting those definitions straight. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so okay. I, I, and I don't mean to make this too unnecessarily complicated. So I apologize, sure. but, but there are okay. a lot of distinctions to draw here um, because a compatibilist in the compatibilist camp, we don't all define freedom in exactly the same way. We all we have different nuances. So, sure, I'm going to give a, a basic definition of it or understanding of it, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't want to nuance it. You know, in case if we were in some kind of debate or something. So, sure, I would say if you define things in a compatibilist way, so that determinism means hypothetical necessity. And freedom means reason responsiveness, and I can unpack that. But if you if you do unpack that, then you see how there is no contradiction. But if you define determinism as hypothetical necessity, and then you define freedom as libertarianism with, as you mentioned, the unconditional ability definition, then there is a contradiction, right? Okay. So I would define it as a more reasons responsive freedom as a reasons responsive. Uh, in a, a reason responsive manner. And so then you can see that there's no contradiction there. Now, the libertarian is not going to be happy with that, of course. Um, but that's how you show the coherence between determinism and free will. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, okay. So suppose you've ironed out the definition. So someone says, well, how can free will, moral responsibility be consistent with determinism? Well, easy. Yeah. If you hold to a compatibilistic view of freedom as defined within the reform tradition, right? If you understand yeah. uh, free, free will within the libertarian context, then yeah, there's, a, there's an inconsistency. So as a Calvinist, I hold to compatibilism. Okay. They'll right. be like, okay, well, well, fine. Let's continue down that route then. So yes. if, if I, um, if God decrees, we'll throw in this idea of God decreeing now, if God decrees that I will eat chocolate ice cream, I can't do anything other than eat the ice cream. How mm -hmm. is that freedom? It just, it just seems yeah. like determinism, bro. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm well, trying to make it sound like, what? Uh, uh, say that again. It, uh, it is determinism. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Okay. 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 So, but, but so then how am I free in any meaningful way? Yeah. It seems like there's just not, and, and, you know, forget about ice cream salvation, you know, God yeah, decreed yeah. I, I'm going to heaven or hell based upon a decision that was made before the foundation of the world. How is that fair? How is that give me a chance to accept, you know, all these sorts of questions go into it. How would you um, respond to that? Here's two questions. How would you respond sure. to that as a philosopher? And then how would you respond to that as a pastor? I think those are two mm. important questions. Yeah, the pastoral question is the most important question, of course. Um, so I, I would want to start by saying I, I want to distinguish between salvation and between um, everything else. Right. Okay. Now, it, it it is true, of course, that God, according to the Reformed theologian, God elects us. And because we're elect, 
we therefore in history embrace the gospel and are saved and God passes over the reprobate and because he passes them over, they don't embrace the gospel in history and are not saved. Um, mm -hmm. That's related, but a little bit different from other questions as to everyday life. You know, if I um, do a morally responsible act, does God determine that also? Well, I would say yes, but it's not in the same way. Okay. So I want to, I want to okay. distinguish those two things. Um, now, if we're talking about determinism and the relation to free will and all this, we, we have to really define what that means. Uh, and then this is where I think, at least in, in my book, uh, Richard Muller um, and another group that you haven't mentioned, but it's I mentioned in my book called the Utrecht School, they define determinism in a way that it is not used in contemporary philosophy. They okay. define basically determinism. Well, well, first of all, they don't really give a clear definition of determinism. They, they really just use the word, and it's almost like uh, they use the word to kind of tar you, right? Determinism, according to Robert Kane and, and many other people who define these things in contemporary philosophy, is just a type of conditional necessity. So let's put this back up and say there are many different types of determinism. There's like a theological determinist. There's a, a causal determinist. There's a psychological determinist. There are many, many types. But what Keynes says, and he's right in, in analyzing this concept, is that what unites them all is that there's a certain type of necessity. And he okay. calls it a conditional necessity. And the Reformed Orthodox would call it a hypothetical necessity. And this is what that means. It means that given certain antecedent conditions, a person's action or the consequent of the antecedent conditions follows necessarily, but it's not an absolute necessity. An absolute necessity would basically say that there's no other possibility. A hypothetical necessity is saying that if the antecedent conditions are different, hmm. then the action would be different. So the conclusion right? is just as certain in all of yes. the situations. It's it's necessary, but it's yes. not right. But but there is a sense in which there were other possibilities. That's right. And that exactly. sense needs to be carefully drawn out. Now, now, real That's quick, right. before before you unpack a little bit more, uh, folks who don't have uh, kind of a philosophical training or perhaps knowledge of some of these um, philosophical issues. Don't get so frustrated. I know a lot of people might think, well, wait a minute. This is just too philosophical, man. You know, free will is just simple. You know, no, it's not. These, like you said at the beginning, these discussions and these terms have a history. And it takes work to unpack that history to get a sharper and clearer understanding of, of how we should understand these issues. So I want to, if people think this is a little too abstract for them, have patience. You could always... You could always read his book or you could listen to this episode again and, and take some notes. Um, but these are very important. Defining terms, laying these things out. It's not as simple um, as some people think it should be. But go ahead. What, what were you going to say as you were unpacking? I, I interrupted you there. Oh, no, no. I was basically finished. And I, I just want to echo what you're saying. And I, I, I can certainly understand how frustrating it can kind of be um, mm -hmm. listening to a dumb philosopher giving all these definitions and all, and all that. And so, um, but it is necessary. We do want to be clear. Um, and, and we can bring it to a more practical level at, at, at some point, of course, but w 
ultimately we want to have in our minds cemented a, a very clear way of thinking about this because pastorally speaking, when you go through things like suffering, when you go through tragedies that happen in life, uh, it is immensely practically helpful to have these things thought out already because then you're not flailing in the wind trying to figure out how to make sense out of this, right? So there is, as abstract as this is, and, and of course everyone doesn't have to be a philosopher, but as abstract as this is, there there is a, a practical cash value to it in the life of the believer. And hopefully we'll get to that at, at some point in this discussion. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to shift things a little bit to kind of a, an apologetics context because, you know, we can do apologetics and we could talk to the unbeliever. And then when they learn, well, wait a minute, you're a Calvinist. Oh, I have a whole bunch of other things to say that actually happened to me one time. I was talking to someone <laughs> and I was giving kind of Calvinistic types of responses. Like, wait, you're reformed. Okay. Well that changes everything, you know? Um, how would you respond to the idea that, okay, God has decreed everything that comes to bear, what, whatsoever comes to pass. And, and it's easy for the reformed person to say, that's right. You know, God, uh, ordains these things and that's why history has purpose and meaning. And we can talk about it in very encouraging and pastoral ways, but typically that's done in with generalities. But when you're in that apologetic context and the unbelievers saying, well, wait a minute, so you're telling me that your God ordained child molestation, rape, murder, genocide, and you could just add to the list every single evil thing that is repugnant to the person who even considers it in their mind. You're telling me that your loving God has ordained these things. How do you untie yourself? from that not Mr. Calvinist. How, how would you respond to something like that, perhaps giving um, a foundation for people who want to look at this from an apologetic standpoint? Yeah, okay, so we're talking strictly apologetically, and, and so I don't have someone in my congregation that's approaching me right. with a really you know, sad story of, of what happened. I mean, I'm not gonna like start launching into philosophical arguments, right? So we're, we're right, talking right, in right. an apologetic context, okay? Yes. Right. So I, I would first point out that nobody escapes this problem, right? Okay. So if you're a Molinist, for instance, God foresaw via his middle knowledge a world where you know, one agent molested a child mm -hmm. and he chose to actualize that when he didn't have to choose to actualize that. See, they inherit the same kind of problem. They inherit the same kind of difficulty. Even if you are, are not a Molinist, um, you know, even if you're like an open theist, right? God could still predict an open theism to a pretty high level that this agent is going to commit some horrendous crime and he could just kill him and stop him, mm. but he doesn't. Okay. So everybody has to deal with this issue of evil. Sure. It's not unique to the Calvinist, right? Um, now, does, does the unbeliever have to do? Does the unbeliever have oh, to deal with it now? So, in my opinion, so someone, someone, someone would just be like, they'd be like, well, I don't, I don't believe in your God, so I don't have to deal yeah. with that, right? And I would say to him first, you're even worse off than anyone in Christianity, then, because <laughs> how do you have anything be evil to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Evil for something to be objectively evil, it presupposes an objective moral standard that only makes sense if God exists. 
Mm. An atheist cannot make sense of an objective moral standard. And I understand there's lots of arguments that need to go in to establish that, but that would be the gist of it. I, I would say if you're, if you're an atheist and if you're going to raise the problem of evil against um, a theist, you're on, 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 worse ground than we are at least we can say evil is real and god has a morally sufficient reason for it and mm -hmm. it's coherent even though people might not like it um an atheist cannot do that sure. so from an apologetic perspective with an atheist i would that would be the first place i would go i would say well what do you mean by evil and if they can't, if they don't define it in, in a way that is objective and universal, then I'm going to say, so why should we pay attention to you? All you're basically saying is it's your preference, but why should I take your preference over anyone else's? If they do define it in a way that is objective and universal, then I would say, well, how do you have objective universal things on your worldview? That's something what if the that person, a Christian would what, what if the person just says, well, on my worldview, you know, I don't call it objective evil. It's just something crummy we all have to deal with. But but on your view, your God is supposed to be good, and yet he ordains these things. How, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so first of all, so he's saying um, there is no objective standard of morality, right? Right, he's trying to do like an internal critique. So he's saying, okay, so right. if God doesn't exist, you know, okay, there's no objective morality. I mean, these things happen. It's terrible. Like, I don't like it. But right. and it's not wrong and it's not evil in an objective sense. It's it's you, Mr. Christian, and more specifically, it's you, Mr. Calvinist, who yeah, believes right. that God uh, ordained and decreed these things. How would you respond to someone yeah. who's coming from that perspective? Yeah. So if he's trying to do an internal critique, then what that means basically is he's trying to show an internal contradiction within the reform worldview. Right. So sure. all I have to do then is show how it's not a contradiction. Okay. And and I don't want to make light of this, but it, it's actually pretty easy. I say. God ordains everything that comes to pass, including evil, and he has a morally sufficient reason for ordaining everything that is evil. And hmm. the atheist is going to say, well, what is that? And I'm going to say, I don't know. God doesn't tell us. Right. And if we're talking merely about coherence, that is a perfectly coherent view. He has not succeeded in establishing a contradiction. Sure. And that's the yeah. end of the argument. Now, you could provide some possible answers that are given sure. in scripture and you mm -hmm. could also punt to you know there god might have any number of, of reasons but your job in responding and this is important i think it's important from an apologetics perspective it is your job to provide the information that shows that it's not logically contradictory it's not your job to provide a detailed answer with you know with you know, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, you know, giving all the, the this robust explanation of, of how it's not. All you need to show is that if it's even possible that God has morally sufficient reasons, that's it. There is no contradiction. And we can right. we could we can speculate as to what his reasons might be, but we don't have to, technically we don't have to go further than that. If we want to give him a little more scripturally, we could, but we don't have to to avoid the internal critique. Right. That's exactly right. And avoiding an internal critique, all you're doing is you're just showing how it's not contradictory. And, mm -hmm. and, and here's what, like, this is one of the reasons why I like to begin with mystery also is okay. you can even say something like this. Um, if you have two supposedly contradicting things uh, and we're not, we won't even just, I'm just going to say this abstractly and then we can fill it out more sure. later if you like. If you have two supposedly contradicting things, all I have to say is, this one is X in a certain sense, and this one is Y in a certain sense. And I don't even have to tell you what those senses are. 
I just have to affirm that there are different senses and there's no contradiction. And this goes hand in glove with mystery. Because if God is infinite, then at some point we're going to run up against the wall where we can't do anything more than just say, well, they're different senses. And I can't tell you what those senses are, but that's enough to establish it's not a contradiction. Mm. Okay. That's a great point there. Um, Okay. So let's suppose, or we've been talking about free will, compatibilism, libertarianism, you know, uh, guidance control, all these scary Mm -hmm. words, right? Cool (laughs) philosophy, bro. Right. Okay. But how is this even biblical? Right. I mean, come on, you know, you Calvinist, you know, you're always talking about a high view of scripture and all you're doing is imposing your philosophical categories upon the text of scripture. Right. Calvinists will boast their systematically, you know, complex system of theology. Um, But the real issue is, what does the Bible say? When I read the Bible, Michael, I seems to suggest a, a libertarian perspective, man. What gives, bro? <laughs> how would you how would you respond to the person who is yeah. and I'm trying to bring the the highfalutin philosophy to like the average per, by the way, yeah. all of that highfalutin philosophy is so important. And I would encourage people to dig deeper into that. Um, but let's bring it down a bit. Where is this in the Bible? It yeah. does it have to be in the Bible? Is it is it something that there are biblical yeah. principles and then you apply philosophical categories to make sense out of the how does it how is this working for you? How do you um, construct your your theology or philosophy in this area? Yeah, I mean, I I begin from the Bible. I mean, I, I would not be reformed. I would not have these philosophical views if I didn't think that there was a basic framework already taught in the Bible. Um, so let's start. If we're talking about compatibilism. Remember, the definition of compatibilism is that determinism is compatible with free will and moral responsibility. I think everybody can look at the Bible and see it's beyond obvious that God holds us responsible, right? I mean, there's a doctrine of hell, right? That's that's the massive way of holding us responsible, okay? So sure. it's non-negotiable that God holds us responsible. That's biblical. Question is, does God, does the Bible teach determinism? Does the Bible teach that God foreordains or decrees or in a meticulous providential manner governs the entire universe? And I would say, I. I, I can't read the Bible in any other way. I think it's very clear that it does. And you can go to passages like Ephesians 1.11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a counsel of his will, which is his thinking about things, his plan. And he works all things according to that plan. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, um, I'm going to stop you right. Th- I'm going to stop yeah. you right there. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little pushback. Okay. Sure. So he, he works all things after the counsel of his will. But maybe the counsel of his will is to give his creatures libertarian freedom. How would you respond to that? I yeah, hope you okay. don't mind me jumping in and out, by the way. No, I'm just kind of trying all. to. There, there okay. are a couple of things to say. One, if he works all things according to the counsel of his will, that necessarily excludes libertarian freedom because libertarian freedom is saying these free acts are not something that God works, right? Mm-hmm. So you, if you have the conditional ability, then there's nothing that God does to you. I'm sorry, the unconditional ability. Then there's nothing that God, you know, quote unquote, does to you that determines an action. So if you have a conditional ability, sorry, unconditional ability or absolute ability, then God is not working those actions that you're doing. Because to say that God is working it is to say that he's then determining it. 
Okay. I'm trying to think from a devil's advocate. So, so someone says, sure. okay, well, again, but God has to choose if you have, if you, if you have libertarian freedom, God still has to choose a particular reality to create whereby he knows specifically what you will do. But then they'll say that God knowing what you will do is not the same as God causally determining what you will do. That's just making my point. I mean, if, okay. if Ephesians is saying that God is the active agent working mm -hmm. everything in the universe according to his plan, then essentially what he is saying is, you don't have to use the word determinism, but he, he's not saying that God is taking this hands-off approach where he's waiting to see what you do and then he's mm -hmm. going to actualize that. Right. And, and we can make this even more clear by looking at, at certain passages. So there are certain passages in the Old Testament, for example, where it's explicit that God turns the hearts of the Assyrians or someone so group to hate the Israelites or to give favor to the Israelites. You know, that's causal language where God is turning the heart. And these are passages, in my opinion, and I haven't done a thorough study of this, so maybe there is a good response to this. But these are passages that don't seem compatible with a Molinist view. Uh, a Molinist is basically saying God doesn't turn the heart. God looks through all the possibilities and he sees that you will libertarianly turn your own heart. Right. Mm -hmm. So these biblical passages, I think, are at least prima facie incompatible with what a Molinist or somebody who affirms libertarian freedom would say. Now, I, I'm sure there's going to be rejoinders and all that, and, and we would have to get into the details of those arguments. But in terms of building a basic framework, I would go to passages like Ephesians 1.11, other passages that talk about God's meticulous providence, other passages that talk about how God turns the hearts uh, and he still holds them responsible. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh Okay, so oh man, I had a question and I wanted you to finish. I didn't want to interrupt. It was a really good no, question. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. No, you don't have to apologize. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my substitute question because I can't think of my really good one. Um, but what about verses that seem to you know? I, I forgot the reference off the top of my head, but it says God says this didn't even enter my mind. So so there seems to be this language in scripture that, you know, what the Israelites did, this, this is not something that God's decreed. It didn't even enter my mind that you should do this. You know, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? And then you get the issue of if God decrees all things, why is he upset when certain things happen? Is he, you know, getting angry at the very thing that he decreed? How would you address that? Very, if you could be very specific and precise, because I know people who are coming sure. from the, uh, the other perspective, they'll want to push you on this very point. So, well, I, I would need to ask more information about the not entering the mind passage. I mean, what is that supposed to establish that it doesn't enter his mind? Like, is this somehow supposed to be against Calvinism? How so? I need I need that to be fleshed out a little bit more. Because, I mean, in a prima facie way, one way of taking that would be that, you know, okay, well, I guess the open theists are right. You know, God doesn't know everything. Because if it doesn't enter your mind, then you don't know it. But if God is omniscient, how can something not enter his mind? I, so I need more more information on on how mm. that's supposed to be an objection. Okay, so so couldn't someone say it's anthropomorphic language, but it's referring to the idea that there is a sense in which this is just not his will. I don't see how this is something that God decrees, but then he seems really upset about it when when it comes to pass. Okay, so you're talking about the second part. You, you gave two kinds of passages. One where it didn't enter God's mind and the other where uh, he's punishing people for doing something he decreed. 
So mm -hmm. I was talking about the first one first. We can go to the next one next. With regards to the first one, I would need to know well, what exactly is it in that passage that you think is objectionable to Calvinism or to Reformed theology? So I'm asking for more information on that. Hmm. Okay. Like, what would they? What would they say? Like, how is that supposed to be against Calvinism? <laughs> just to say something didn't enter God's mind. It just seems to think. It seems to go against the idea that God just decrees everything in the way the Calvinist says. It almost. It's just to point out things are clearly not God's will to happen, and it seems okay. to be given the text that it's not His will in a way that is incompatible with God decreeing everything. Okay, so let me kind of regurgitate this and see if this is what you're saying. And I might be saying it very sloppily, so. <laughs> no, it, it's, that's, that's fine. I mean, I'm probably going to give a sloppy answer anyway. So okay. um, it, it is, the, is the idea that it didn't enter God's mind and therefore he couldn't have decreed it because it didn't enter God's mind. It seems to be that the scripture is suggesting that this is not of God. Yet the Calvinist says all things in a sense are from God and that he decrees everything that happens. So it, it seems to go yeah. against the Calvinist view of their, you know, what they would say, the causal determinism on Calvinism it seems to go against that idea. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that that would be a very unwise interpretation of the passage only because, I mean, if you're going to take it that way, then you have to deny that God is omniscient. Because if something mm -hmm. happened in the world that didn't enter God's mind, then how does he know it? Mm. And, okay. and if that's the case, then that particular interpretation of the passage would seem to have the bad consequence of denying the omniscience of God. Mm -hmm. So it can't mm -hmm. be a correct interpretation of the passage. Okay. So they would have to appeal to some kind of anthropomorphic language in that regard. Which, and, and which is exactly what I would do. I, I, I would say, um, to use a, a category from the Reformed Scholastics, um, this is analogical language. All scripture is analogical language or ectypal knowledge. Um, basically, good, those are going, good Vantillian words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's basically going back to what I was talking about earlier, how God accommodates himself where he speaks baby talk to us. We cannot understand exactly how it is in God's mind. So God has to reveal it to us in a downgraded manner, so to speak, so that we can understand things. And so in terms of the passages that are talking about how, how God can decree something and then punish us for it, well, one, you have explicit passages where he's doing that. You know, mm -hmm. you have those passages where he turns the heart and then he punishes them. But two, we can, we can also say, look, we can't understand God's mind. So I can't give you the exact you know, details of how it is that God can decree something and then hold us responsible for it. I mean, other than the general ideas of this is what freedom means, this is what moral responsibility means, and this is what determinism means. Beyond that, there's a whole bunch more mystery. Uh, and that's completely legitimate. Uh, everybody appeals to mystery. Um, I don't sure. know that. Yes, you are. And I just thought of the thing I was going to ask previously. Okay. That I forgot. So, so you, you use scripture that seemed to suggest that God is determining things precisely the way that the Calvinist says now, but I've heard some non-Calvinists say, well, well, wait a minute. Um, it is possible for God to determine some things without determining all things. Mm -hmm. So all you're telling me is that in some instances, um, God, pardon, God determined, you know, some, 
you know, the enemies of Israel to rise up and to fight against them so that Israel could have victory right. over them, you know, whatever. You're just giving me an example of God determining something. But yeah. the idea of God determining something is not is not inconsistent with the notion that God, um, what was I say? it's not inconsistent with the idea of God not determining all things, if that makes sense. Um, so if I'm understanding you, you're saying that a, a libertarian could say, look, uh, there are certain things God determines. Right. They have, I have no God. problem. I have no problem saying God determines yeah. some things, but right. that doesn't mean right. he determines everything like you're saying. So here, here's my response. If you say that there is one instance where God determines something and then holds them morally responsible, you have mm -hmm. affirmed compatibilism. Because that's, that's all we're saying, right? A, a libertarian cannot say that, more, that, that free will and moral responsibility can be determined. That's the whole thesis. The whole thesis is, look, it's incompatible, right? If they're going to say, yeah, well, in this one instance in the Bible, this is what happened, then they've, they've kind of given up libertarianism, haven't they? Because now they're saying free will and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism, and here's one instance of it. Hmm. Okay. And so if they huh. do that, then I'm happy to say, oh, great. I agree with that. That shows now, my view. Now, what if someone holds to a soft libertarian view? Why don't mm -hmm. you define soft libertarian for people so they know what we're talking about here? And does that matter in this discussion that you just, you know, does that matter with yeah. respect to what you just said? Maybe it doesn't. I, I honestly don't know what soft libertarian is. is. I've, I've never okay. heard that term before. Um, okay. You want to define yeah. it for me really quickly and I can interact with it? Sure. The first time I, I hear soft libertarianism uh, touted around by many Molinists, uh, it sounds okay. very compatibilistic. So um, I don't, I'm going to give you a definition from the top of my head, but it's the idea that one is, um, free to do that, which is consistent with their nature. However, there are multiple things that are consistent with their nature that they can libertarianly choose between. Does that make sense? So it sounds like compatibilism. I'm, I'm acting in a way that's in accordance with my nature, but I have a libertarian freedom to choose between the options that are compatible with my nature. So for example, if I'm totally depraved, there are any number of totally depraved actions that I, you know, sinful actions that I could choose from. Mm -hmm. And soft libertarianism, to my understanding, says that they have libertarian freedom to choose between those multiple um, sinful actions that are consistent with with our with my nature. So that's my understanding of soft uh, libertarian. I've I've heard um, some Molinists say it. I, I think I've heard um, Dr. Kirk McGregor, um, mm -hmm. who wrote a very fine book. Actually, let me give him a shout out because. <laughs> Uh, I think he does a really good job. I think he wrote one of the first biographies of the life in, uh, of Louis de Molina and it speaks of his life and, and theology. And he really goes into, you know, these specific areas. And I think in a very brilliant way, uh, even though at the end of the day, I, I disagree with his view. Um, and if people are interested, actually, I actually interviewed um, Dr. McGregor. He's somewhere on the video list or maybe on my old YouTube channel. I don't know. But anyway, so so soft libertarianism is a thing, and I hear Molinists say it. If you're not familiar with it, you don't have to speak to it, but I thought that might be relevant at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, that's great. I mean, uh, I've heard the term. Uh, I have not seen it um, uh, defined. Uh, you know, I don't do a lot of uh, interaction with Molinists, so maybe that's why sure. I've heard it and I haven't. Uh, I'm trying to get my, my head around that. Uh, mm. So you're saying that um, a, a soft libertarian says that you have a nature whether good or evil like say you have a good nature and 
your nature somehow causes you or, or you libertarianly do. So, 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 so say my palm is the person, right? Okay. My, and is my nature. I have a nature. My fingers are different actions that I can choose that are consistent with my nature. Right. Now, okay. when I'm going to make a choice, the soft libertarian will say that I have a libertarian freedom to choose among the various options that are consistent with my nature right. so that it is soft in the sense that it sounds like compatibilism, but there is a level of libertarianism in it between the options that I have. Does that make yeah, sense? I'm not, I'm not seeing how that's any different from libertarianism though, because because the libertarian is basically saying the same thing, right? They're saying, you know, you have uh, you're, you're a particular person and mm -hmm. you can do various things within your realm of power of being that particular person. Like what's soft about that? Yeah. Is, um, is the idea that it's supposed to be restricted to fewer opportunity or fewer options? Yeah, per perhaps. I, I don't want to okay. get too into it because I sure. don't remember. Okay. When I used to study Molinism and talk about it, I knew it much more, you know, much better. Uh, but if you're not too familiar with it, okay. I'm not going to butcher it because I know someone okay. will make a two hour response video saying why we're wrong. So okay. that's how the okay, YouTube world works. Okay. So we're up on the, on the hour here. Um, what okay. I want to, what I want to do is ask you one final question and then we're going to go into the, we you have a bunch of questions here in the comments and maybe okay. we can uh, unpack a bunch of other stuff um, in the comments here, but why don't you summarize your view um, as a Calvinist, right? why you believe it in just a general sense, you, you know, give maybe kind of little pieces of um, information as this is why I hold the, the position, summarize your position, and then we'll move into the questions. Okay. Sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, ultimately, uh, as a reformed Christian, uh, I hold to this view because of what I think the Bible teaches. I think mm -hmm. the Bible teaches that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass and that God has meticulous providence over everything, including our own actions and that he does it in such a manner that we are free and we are morally responsible. Um, mm. And there are various passages that we've, we've spoken of already, and there are, are many other ones, but for just being general here, that's why I believe what I believe. I, I think that contemporary analytic philosophy can kind of be the handmaiden to theology here in that that basic framework that I just laid out could be flushed out in more detail using the tools of analytic philosophy and these various compatibilist and semi-compatibilist views. So that's kind of what I see as my project. Mm. And um, apart from your book, who else is writing on this topic that people should check out? Of course, they should check out your book as well. I mean, that are Christians, you mean? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because yes. there's a lot of people that, that are not Christians that are writing. Sure. Writing that. Sure. Obviously, the good Doctor Bignon, right? Our, okay. A good French uh, Calvinist guy. He his book is excellent. I would I would take that. Uh, Paul Helm. He's for okay. years and years and years been writing on these topics. Um, you have guys like James Anderson and Greg Welty and a, a number of other guys who have put out a book a while back called Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. You have another guy by the name of Heath White, who has written an excellent book put out by Notre Dame. And the name is escaping me right now. Uh, name of the book. Uh, if, you, if you just go to Amazon and, and type in Heath White, I'm sure it'll, it'll come up. Uh, there's sure. another guy named Peter Furlong who has written a book called Challenges to Determinism, I believe. And, and I don't think he actually 
ends up siding with determinism, but he goes through the different challenges and shows how determinists have ways out of these, um, mm. even though he doesn't completely agree with it from what I recall. But those are some things like the Heath White book and, and the Peter Furlong book are kind of up here, analytic philosophy books, the James White not James White, James uh, Anderson. Wilson I was like, book. James White's an analytic philosopher? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> the James James Anderson, Greg Welty, and, and others book, Calvinism, The Problem of Evil, is, is still pretty high level, but I think it's a little bit more accessible than those. Paul Helm, um, his latest book, Reforming Free Will, and other stuff that he's written, it's still a little bit up there, but it's even a little bit more um, accessible, I think. Sure. So uh, those would be places that one could go to. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm yeah. really enjoying this conversation. I hope you are Good. as well. I'm um, totally. Yes. Thank you. And I, I always tell people this. I go. I I listen to my own show, so I'm probably going to go back and listen to this and be like, Good. okay, so it can sink in a little a little more. Uh, just real quick, um, I want to give a, a shout out to Tanner Terry who gave a five dollar super chat. He says to this end, or she, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> He's Tanner, whatever, whoever, whatever you are. Uh, Tanner says to this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Colossians 129. God works as man works. No need for dialectics. Thank you so much for the $5 uh, super chat. I really appreciate that. Um, all right. So let's go all the way back up to the top and see if we can pick apart some questions here. Uh, okay. So let's see here. Here's uh Plantiga's bulldog. Uh, mm -hmm. does Michael deal with the metaphysics in his book, particularly the control metaphysics? I assume, you know what he's talking about. Uh, maybe you could address um, that. Well, I certainly deal with control and, and what that means according to guidance control. So yes, and I deal with certain kinds of metaphysics, but, uh, mm -hmm. there's much more to be said. My book is not an all encompassing, um, book that, deals with everything in analytic philosophy about free will. It's more an attempt to take the reform scholastics and analytic philosophy and show how they're compatible and come up with a more clear understanding of, of, of what a reform view of freedom would be. Um, mm. So yes, in part, um, if I understand his question correctly, yes, in part I do. Okay, very good. Plantiga, uh, Bulls, Plantiga's Bulldog also asks, who is Dr. Pereciado's favorite contemporary philosopher in philosophy of free oh. will? Does he think deterministic incompatibilism, i.e. Dirk Paraboom, uh, is a problem for theism? So my favorite one would be John Martin Fisher. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with him. He's an just outstanding philosopher. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he's the one that he and another uh, philosopher named Mark Ravisa uh, came up with the whole guidance control view. Uh, he's an atheist. Um, so this should show you that there are certain things to be mined. It doesn't mean we have to agree with his atheism. Sure. Um, sure. So common grace, common grace, man. Common grace. Exactly. Exactly. So now the question then was, does he think deterministic incompatibilism is a problem for theism? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, uh, Dirk Paraboom does not believe that we are morally responsible in the basic dessert sense. And I think that uh, a reformed or any Christian has to say that we are responsible in the basic dessert sense. You know, we do a certain act and we are praised or blamed for it, uh, in part at least, because we deserve to be praised or blamed for it. So that would be an obstacle for Paraboom's view. Uh, that said, there's a lot in Paraboom that is fantastic that could be used uh, by a reformed 
philosopher uh, to deal with some of these issues. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, here's my buddy, Brian Knapp. Um, we should, uh, folks, if you're interested in discussions on presuppositional apologetics, you should check out um, Brian Knapp's and Chris Bolt's new YouTube channel. I think it's called Revelational Apologetics. Sounds very similar to a revealed apologetics, but it's okay. No, no copyright issues there. Um, I highly recommend you check that out. They just have their first episode up and I just listened to it today. It was really good stuff. So, um, hey, Brian, how's it going? Um, and his question to you, Michael, is uh, we likely agree that we will not sin in heaven, but are we able able to sin in heaven. I suppose there's a, a philosophical discussion to be had with respect to the sort of able um, that he's uh, getting at. Yeah, that would be, that would be the question. You know, what do we mean by able? Um, and, and if you're going to basically take the conditional analysis view, we would say something, well, sure, if we wanted to, um, we would be able to, but in heaven, we're not going to want to. So in that sense, we're not able uh, the way that I understand these issues of, of ability or, you know, certain modal phrase or words like can and stuff like that is I take what's more known as a, a contextualist view, which is um, there's always a context in which these words function. So if I say, if you were to ask me, Michael, can you go to Hawaii tomorrow or, or today? like in the same day. And I would have to say, well, it depends on the context. If, if I take a plane, I can get to Hawaii in five hours. So yes, I'm able to do that. If I'm going to try to swim, no, I can't do that. Right. So these, these words always have a context and we have to ask well, what the context is. So in heaven, um, it, are, are we able to sin? Well, in one sense, yes. I mean, if you're looking at things like a, a the laws of logic. Is there somehow a contradiction in the statement saying Michael can sin in heaven? Well, no, there's no logical contradiction. Uh, the issue would be that my nature is now glorified. And so I would not be able to do it in the sense of my nature, not allowing it, but not in the sense of the laws of logic. So I confirm, well, sure, according to the laws of logic, I'm able to, according to my nature that's been glorified, no, I'm not able to. So we have to, and there are many other contexts in which to define these words. So we'd have to be very specific as to exactly which one we're talking about. I don't know if that's helpful. Okay. Yeah, no, very helpful. Um, Tanner uh, asked the question, what do you mean by mystery? This question came up when we were, when you spoke about beginning with, with mystery. Why don't you tell us what you mean by mystery? And why your version of mystery, which is not a special version, we all have mystery, is different than what Calvinists typically just punt things off to mystery. You know, people kind of wave it off as, eh, we don't have an answer for that, so it's mysterious. Why aren't you doing that? But why is the notion of mystery still important? Yeah, so what, what I mean by mystery is I would, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would think pretty much any Christian would basically mean the same thing. We, we basically just mean that we are finite and God is infinite, and that means our knowledge is limited, right? So the limitation of our knowledge then means that the things that extend beyond our knowledge are mysterious to us, right? They're not contradictory. We believe that God is a rational being who has complete coherence within his being. So we're not saying a mystery is a contradiction. We're saying a mystery is something that transcends our ability to understand or comprehend it. 
So mm -hmm. that's what I mean by mystery. All right. Thank you. Terry has another question. Um, I think it was based off something you said with respect to the internal states and it not being related to external states or something or other. But uh, Tanner says, Eli's mental and physical faculties aren't related to the internal state of Eli. Do you remember uh, mm. the context of which you were speaking about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I, I would definitely say that your mental and physical faculties are part of what it means to be your internal state. Okay. I mean, is that all he's asking? I mean, uh, that's well, I mean, great. we just roll with the questions as they come. Sure. I'm not yeah. sure, but that's, a, that's sufficient for me. Here's a, one more by Terry. Terry has a bunch of questions and his <laughs> or hers comes first before the, the bottom of the list there. But, uh, um, Tanner asks, what is compatibilistic freedom? And we did define that, uh, define that yeah. before, but why don't you just briefly define, for, define well, it for I mean, us now? Again. So compatibilism is an overarching category wherein mm -hmm. there are numerous different understandings of what compatibilist freedom is. So I can give a couple, I'll, I'll give just as examples too. You have someone like a Harry Frankfurt, right? So he believes that you have um, this kind of hierarchy of desires, right? So you have a first order desire and you have a second order desire. A first order desire would be Eli desiring to eat French fries. A second order desire would be Eli approving of his first order desire to eat French fries. And Frankfurt would say you have freedom when your first order and second order desires mesh. So that's mm -hmm. one compatibilist view. Another compatibilist view would be like what I'm advocating with a reasons responsive view. And I would basically say what it means to be free is that you are reasons responsive, that, that you have the ability to respond to reasons in various situations. Now that gets mm -hmm. flushed out in more detail, of course, but those would be two different types of views. And there are others of what compatibilist freedom would be. The essence mm -hmm. of compatibilism is basically just saying that some view of freedom, genuine freedom, is compatible with determinism. All right. Very good. Planticus Bulldog asks, what does Dr. Press, uh, I'm sorry, my American mm -hmm. side, Preciado, what I meant to say is Dr. Preciado, okay. Uh, what does Dr. Preciado think of the problem of luck for compatibilist views? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Now, this guy obviously knows something about this area. Um, yeah, I, I think the problem of luck, I mean, obviously understanding it in a certain way is unavoidable for anybody. And I think the, the Calvinist has the best way of answering it. Uh, we basically think that God ordains everything. And well, let me take a step back and, under, and give you an understanding of what luck, the problem of luck is. Um, um, there's a number of ways of, of cashing this out. But basically, the problem of luck is, is that we don't have control over certain things about us. Right. So the kinds of care. So this would be called constitutive luck. Constitutive mm -hmm. luck is basically saying you don't have control, ultimate control over how your character has developed from which you're making choices. Right. So you're born into a certain family in a certain nation. That's not in your control. They raise you in a certain way and that affects your character and forms your character. You're not in control of that. So then the question is, well, that's luck. I mean, how could you be responsible? for luck, right? That, sure. That's constitutive luck. Uh, another uh, form of luck would be uh, uh, like like circumstantial luck, which would basically be like the, the classic example is two drunk drivers, right? You have two drunk drivers, they leave at the same time. One hits a pedestrian who just ran across the street, the other gets home safely, 
right? Given the circumstances, one is lucky and the other is unlucky. Who They're just as guilty of driving drunk, but one seems to be more morally responsible for hitting the person than the one that didn't, even though it had nothing to do with their own control. It just was a matter of you know, luck, right? So a Calvinist is going to say, look, God, providence ordains everything, even if we don't have control over it. And he still holds us morally responsible for things. And he holds us morally responsible for those things, as I would say, that we have guidance control over. Now, I think the problem of luck ends up being a really big problem for a libertarian because I think in their view, and, and I'm obviously oversimplifying here, but when we go back to the rollback argument that we spoke of earlier, right, what is it that accounts for why uh, when you roll back plan of the universe a thousand times that 60 times he does, 60% of the times he does one thing and 40% he does another? What accounts for that? The answer would be luck, right? Because nothing in the agent is causing or determining him to make one choice or another. And if, if, if luck is the issue, if luck is located right there, then you have a problem of control. In what sense did the agent control what actually happened? If there's nothing in him that is an extension that, that gets extended in his action, how do we make sense out of that, how that person had control? And if we can't make sense out of that person had control, how can you hold him responsible? Yeah. All right. Does that makes sense. Yep. That makes perfect okay. sense. Um, here's a question. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's a friend, uh, my friend Tyler here. He says, I'll probably be watching. Uh, he was anticipating him coming late, but he, he asked the question. Um, I'm just going to read the whole statement he has here. I'll probably be watching by then, but if not, please ask him, that's you, to talk about any real substantive differences in sourcehood incompatibilism and the compatibilistic understanding of guidance control. I've always found that when pressed, the source incompatibilist just means guidance control. But when shown that, but when shown that, fall back on some some lack of categorical ability or opportunity to choose otherwise. Does that make sense to you? Kind of. I might need you to reread it for me. That's no problem. No problem. <laughs> it's like in a statement, in a, a question, in a statement. So, okay. So he says, "I'll probably be watching by then, but if not, please ask him to talk about any real substantive differences in sourcehood incompatibilism and the compatibilistic understanding of guidance control." I've always found that when pressed. The source incompatibilist just means guidance control. But when shown that, they often fall back on some lack of categorical ability or opportunity to choose otherwise. Okay. So, well, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and I, hope yes. I, I hope I understood the question properly. Um, Let's try so, your best. It's, I, it's a, it was a, 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 sorry, Tyler. It was a slop, a sloppily uh, <laughs> constructed uh, question, but uh, it's all good. You can try your best. Go ahead. Okay. So, um, Guidance control would be considered a semi-compatibilist view, first off. So it wouldn't okay. be considered a compatibilist view. Um, there are other source, well, how do I want to put So he said source incompatibilism and compatibilism. Like what's, yeah, something like what's that. the substantive difference? Yeah. Is that, okay. Yeah. So as I understand source incompatibilism, uh, that's the view that um, you don't have to be the ultimate source of your action in order to be free and morally responsible. Okay. Okay. And that would be 
a tenant of guidance control. Guidance control would say you don't have to be the ultimate source of your action in order to be free and morally responsible. But there are other source incompatibilist views that aren't guidance control. So Frankfurt would basically is it would be something like that, a source incompatibilist view. He would say you don't have to be the ultimate source of your action in order to be um, free and morally responsible. So I, I don't know that I would make the connection between source incompatibilism and guidance control and say that they're the same thing. Okay. All right. That was good. Given the, the I question. I mean, I could have gotten that completely wrong. No worries. How are you doing? Are you okay? Uh, yeah, I'm good. My daughter hasn't woken up yet, so that's good. All right. Very good. Scott, uh, Scott asks, uh, Mr. Is Mr. Uh, Preciado still planning to do an analytically precise work on Van Til's epistemology? We desperately need it. Wow. Well, how did he know that I even had, anything like that in mind. I did know. I mention that? I don't know. Maybe I mentioned that. And so he's, um, maybe. Yes, well, I am, yeah. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> are. Is, yes. I mean, this is a long-term project. It's, I want to sure. finish the, the free will project first. Uh, I'm, I'm slowly starting to refamiliarize myself with, with the transcendental argument literature, but I don't foresee anything being completed for probably a number of years still. Now, that said, since my channel focuses heavily on presuppositionalism and transcendental argumentation, would you be willing to come on in the future and have a conversation? I mean, yeah. I know you're going to be working on it for years, but based upon where you are at the moment, maybe we could unpack some of the things, the project that you're doing. What are you sure. trying to accomplish? Maybe we can unpack yeah. that. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be great. You have, just have to give me a little bit more time to, to re-familiarize myself with-, with No worries. Others. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Of course. Of course. Um, Brian uh, asked the question, could you explain reasons responsive for us and perhaps provide yeah. an example? Sure. Okay. So here's, I'll, I'll give a, a quick example. And I think this is kind of a variant of something that Fisher gives. Okay. So, so assume that you have uh, a person with a, a nervous tick, right? Um, and the nervous tick just causes the person's arm to go like that, right? Right. This is, um, that's what he does. Okay. So he's, he, he's walking down the street one day and he sees one of his friends. And at the moment he sees one of his friends, the nervous tick goes off and he goes, boom. And he punches the guy right in the face. Right. Is he morally responsible for that? We're going to say as a reason responsive theorist, no. And the reason why is because no matter what reason was presented to him, he still would have done the same thing because the nervous tick is not reasons responsive. And it's one of the reasons why we say things like that are not things that you can hold someone responsible for. Does hmm. that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, let's see here. Uh, Scott also asked, did um, Mr. Preciado read Paul Minata's book on the will? If so, what are your thoughts? He has a book on the will. <laughs> I guess he didn't read it. <laughs> um, well, no, I read something a long time ago. Okay. I, I think it was like an introduction to something. Maybe, maybe this is what he's referring to, and, mm -hmm. and my memory just isn't good. But I do recall reading something uh, from him. And, and I have had, uh, uh, as I was writing uh, this in his dissertation form, I had some email conversations with him and, and one phone conversation with him. Um, mm hmm so I think I have read what he's referring to. I'm not hundred percent certain. Um, sure. I read something by him. That was good. 
I liked it. Okay. Paul, Paul, Paul's good. <laughs> I've been trying to get Paul to, to come on. He's a busy guy too. So, uh, uh, well, that would he's, be a great he, show. I would watch that. that. Yeah, I I would probably rewatch it because he uh, my interactions with him on Facebook. He's he's a funny guy. I think we'd actually yeah, have yeah, a great totally. conversation. Absolutely. But at any rate, wink, wink, Paul, if you're watching, <laughs> hello. All right. Anyway, Mr. C says, given the fact that we all desire, want soundness of mind, does that desire not lead us to other objective truths? The main one being that the use of malice in any form contradicts soundness. I'm not sure I understand that. I don't either. I don't. Okay. I get that. That's all right. If you don't understand it, we'll move along so we can get to other okay, questions. I'm sorry. I, well, if you want right. to rewrite it or something, I don't want to, I, I don't want him to leave you know, unhappy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Okay, let's see here. If he was not a person. Let's see here. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. Scott asks, can um, Michael, uh, Michael, I was saying Mr. Pedesi, I don't know where Mr. came from. Okay. Can Michael offer a general outline of God's will, given the categories he's laid out this evening? In a short snippet, of course. I mean, that's a big topic, but. Um, a, a general outline of God's will. Uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around what that would mean. Maybe like I, the different senses of God's will, like his decrees, maybe oh, prescriptive, or maybe that's where it's coming a from. Classic distinction in, in Reformed theology, and, and it's actually it's not unique to Reformed theology, at least formally. I mean, they mean different things, but uh, between sure. his decretive will and his prescriptive will. Uh, God's uh, prescriptive will are the commandments that he gives to us, the, the expectations that he has of us as to how to live our life. And the decretive will is what he has decreed from before the foundation of the world. Um, mm. Is that what he's saying? So he, it says to given the categories he's laid out in this evening. Um, right. I think given what you've said with respect to, you know, free will, more responsibility, determinism. How does God's will work out in all this? You know, how would you lay it out? That's how yeah, I took um, it. Well, just if we just take those two categories, for instance, uh, obviously God's decretive will is his all determining will. So that would be the determinism. Uh, his mm -hmm. prescriptive will doesn't always come to pass. So that would not be his de a deterministic decretive will. Um, if you're asking how they relate, I mean, if if, if the question is how, how they relate, they relate somehow in God. I mean, God God has uh, given us these commandments to live by, and then he has decreed, you know, in some instances for us to not live by them, right? And mm -hmm. the question is, well, how does that make any sense? Well, it makes sense in God's mind. Um, and from us as a, as a human perspective a finite human perspective we make sense out of that basically by saying god has a morally sufficient reason for decreeing us to not fulfill his prescriptive will now again mm -hmm. that's not going to be satisfying to people that want to know the details of everything but it is a coherent answer and the charge of a contradiction would not be applicable okay very good that's a very helpful way of Phrasing that there. Brian asks, uh, do you feel Exodus 10.1 is a good example of compatibilism, semi-compatibilism, God decreeing that Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go free and yet will hold him responsible? I do, but I do know that there are issues like of hardening Pharaoh's heart. And some people say, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart first. And then God, I like to use other, other passages um, where they specifically talk about God turning the will 
of the Assyrians or other people to either give favor to the Israelites or to hate the Israelites, I think those passages are even more clear than the issue with Pharaoh. Hmm. Okay. That is the last question. I'm scrolling down here. I think you did a really good job. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. I, well, there was one more question. I didn't want, I want to skip over. This is the last question here. So, okay. so Mr. C asks, since free will isn't something that we desire, but rather implied, doesn't that change the whole concept of free will as a choice? Wouldn't it be a non-choice? Again, I'm not sure what he's asking. Maybe you could unpack that. So since free will, I'm, I'm trying to read it here. Since free will isn't something that we desire, well, I'm not sure why it wouldn't be something we desire, but rather implied, implied from what? Doesn't that change the whole concept of free will as a choice? Well, free will would be considered more than just a choice, pretty much on any definition as far as I understand it. Wouldn't it be a non know, Honestly, I, I don't quite grasp what, what is being asked. Sorry. All right. No, no worries. That's just the way how live streams go. When people okay. ask questions about presuppositionalism, I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying there. It's to <laughs> totally normal. Um, Michael, you did an excellent job. Uh, mm -hmm. you you've given a lot of uh, food for thought. I, as I said before, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this. Um, and I hope folks do if they're really interested in this topic. Um, is there any way people can find your content online? I know your, your website's not very active, but will you be doing something soon? Um, what's going on with you? Yeah. So I have a website, michaelpreciado.com. And mm -hmm. originally I'd planned to have a podcast and to have an active blog and, and life has just gotten so busy. I have not had the time to do that. I do plan on doing that eventually. So I would say, Lord willing, within the next year, there will be more activity on there. I have a Facebook account. Um, you can just look me up and if you don't look like an axe murderer, I'll, I'll accept your friend request. Um, <laughs> I also am, uh, as I mentioned to you, a, a teacher of the congregation at Faith Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Garland, Texas. Um, if you want to attend uh, the Bible studies that I teach, uh, feel free to come, um, you know, say hi to me. Uh, we have an awesome pastor there. His name is Chad Bond. You will get an awesome exegetical Bible-based sermon every single week in and out. Um, no disappointments there. So feel free to, to come say hi to me there. Um, those would be ways of, of getting uh, more content and ways of getting a hold of me, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, someone says here, what if I look like an ax murderer, but I'm actually really nice. <laughs> Then look nice. You would have to look nice. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, Michael, this was a lot of fun and um, very, very helpful. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, once again, I, before I end, I just want to um, point people in the direction of my website, Revealed Apologetics. If you're interested in taking um, uh, an online course that I created with uh, complete with lectures and outlines and PowerPoint slides, you can sign up for that um, on revealedapologetics.com and you click on the option uh, Presup You. 
which is short for Precept University. Um, you could uh, enroll in that and uh, email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com if you have any questions, suggestions of, of guests to have in the future. Um, I definitely read those and take them to heart. So um, please feel free to do that. Other than that, this concludes this episode. That concludes this episode. I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen and send a question. I hope this has been helpful to, uh, to folks. So thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.